This is Empod. From the Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast, this is Empod, a podcast about conflict, peace, and justice. This program features and is led by master's students in the Conflict Transformation and Social Justice module here at Queen's. I'm Carson Cahoe. I'm Sinead Dean. I'm Morgan Mattingly. And each month, we will examine different topics relating to social justice, peace and conflict studies, and the ways they impact the world around us. Within our interdisciplinary program, we're constantly engaging with people who study, live, or campaign for peace, inclusion, and social justice. In this year's edition of the podcast, we invite you to explore these subjects with us. It's great to be here, and it's wonderful to be doing this introductory episode on a subject so relevant, not only to the concepts of conflict and social justice, but to the very place that we are in right now, that being Belfast, Northern Ireland. The subject that we're looking at today is creating shared spaces in contested ground, looking at research focused on Nicosia in Cyprus, and also Belfast in Northern Ireland. This episode, which I'm very excited about, is also a fantastic testament to the Master's programme, as we have one of our graduates from last year presenting her research to one of our fantastic graduates from this year, Catherine Blake. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Hi, Sinead. Hi, Carson. Hi, Morgan. Wonderful to have you here. I think it would be great to just start with talking about yourself for a minute, if you wouldn't mind. Um, (laughs) And just kind of letting us know what made you come to Queen's to study conflict transformation and social justice and what your background is, your areas of interest, all of that jazz. I was a journalist for 20 years and then I did some work in the world of politics, ran out of that screaming (laughs) and thought, okay, that's not for me. And then I was looking around for something that would feed that side of me that was wanted something a bit more. I was thinking, okay, so the journalism wasn't enough. It's very limited in what you can achieve. Politics isn't enough. You're very limited in what you can achieve. So I was looking for something more than that. So And I really wanted to do a master's and I knew about this master's in Queen's and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I made it happen. Oh, wonderful. I suppose it was great that your running screaming ended up running to here. Now, Catherine, you interviewed Jan King. How did you meet her? We all went to meet Jan and, and learned about the, the podcast that they were doing last year. And then we got talking to her and she turned out had done this amazing dissertation about trying to create a shared space and anything that informs the experience of living in a divided city or a divided country or a divided community is incredibly useful. It's what everybody is looking for. Anybody who lives in a divided society is always looking for this space that they can occupy that will be there for both sides and both sides of the community Mm. can come and share this space. It's very difficult to find that piece of ground because... Space is a huge issue. It's a contested issue in a divided society. Thank you so much, Catherine. It sounds like a fascinating interview. Now, let's listen to a bit of what Jan had to say. I'm Jan. I'm Jan King. And I'm here today because last year I undertook the Masters in Conflict Transformation and Social Justice at the Mitchell Institute. Your dissertation title was Creating Common Ground at the Interface. Yes, Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Being here in Northern Ireland, in Belfast in particular, and also I'd been in Cyprus, in Nicosia, and I was interested in the fact that where society is or communities are divided, they need to have space to come together 
to be able to mend the conflict they've had in the past. But that's very difficult because they tend to be segregated. And so I was interested in, in particular, two organisations and others, but two that I focused on who had done work to try and create space where those divided societies could actually come together, address their issues and indeed, you know, try and build relationships again. And these organisations that you were interested in, were they NGOs or state organisations? Yeah, they were um, community sector organisations, so civil society organisations, which I think was quite an in, important aspect because I think what I found was it's actually quite a difficult thing for individuals to do. It's quite a difficult thing for politicians to do. And so the civil society organisations effectively are the sort of the first responders, if you like, to trying to, to create this space. They're able to take risks that perhaps others aren't able to do. And they're able to move into this space because they have other, you know, good relationships both with their own community, but also they're, they're, they create relationships across community. And so, it's, so I think they're in quite a unique space to change this dynamic and create this common ground. I mean, the groups that I looked at had specific aims which were about bridging bridging the communities and working together. I think it's really important that it's, it's recognising which sort of organisations and how they're set up and the people within them uh, are able to actually create this sort of bridging social capital and bring people together. Can you explain social capital for us? I shall try, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think social capital was really important in what I was looking at in terms of a society that works well together. And so Robert Putnam came up with this theory some time ago that it's social capital is the sort of glue that enables people to get on with each other, to cooperate. At a very simple level, it's things like, I don't know, people saying thank you when they bought something in the shop or holding the door open for each other. But at a much bigger level, it's sort of you know, how everything runs and keeps going and that we sort of work together for some sort of common good without necessarily even talking about it. You know, it's just how we work together. But in a divided society, that breaks down. And so actually, divisions come in. And so he came up, he developed his theory to talk about bonded social capital and then bridging social capital. So bonded social capital, I think he talked about it being like, he called that the sort of super glue that creates a bond between one community. Whereas, I think he used the term that bridging social capital was like WD-40, so it oiled the wheels and it <laughs> enabled different um, communities to work together. But there's another researcher, uh, Graham, who looked at this quite recently and said in divided societies, it's more problematic to create this bridging effect because actually the bonding social capital is often made greater by the fact they're in opposition to another group. So actually it makes one group much tighter, or the you know, two of its two two communities, they're much tighter together in opposition to each other. So there's actually less room for them to then create a sort of bridging social capital. Wow. Okay. Let's take a moment to break that down a bit. What does social capital mean to us? What did you think, Catherine? This idea of social capital and looking for this uh, shared space. We all have um, bonding social capital. In other words, we all live together every day and we, you know, we have our reference, our points of reference and things that we all know and share. And it's like a shorthand between us. In a divided society, what happens is that that 
bonding in one group and in the other group becomes incredibly strong. And when that social capital bonding becomes very, very strong, it then becomes more difficult to bridge it. That's the, the entire point here is uh, there is a space for one group and a space for another group, and there is no comfort in mixing between these two. And just on that, I think something that we all perhaps watched in preparation for anyone that like myself that moved to Belfast. I mean, I've got Irish roots, but the scene in Derry Girls, the opening scene mm. of series two, I, I made my mum watch it because she, I knew how funny she'd find it. Those those things that sort of like identify different communities. I mean, people always joke about where do you keep your toaster in a, the Protestant and Catholic communities? Catholics Is it, go on marches. Yeah, Protestants go on walks. No. Other way around. Other way. Around. <laughs> um, <laughs> gosh, yeah, you need to rewatch that. But um, <laughs> that was something that when Jam was talking about these, this idea of social capital, that definitely was what I was thinking about through this. It's really interesting if we look at Belfast coming as an outsider. I had no idea how divided the society still was, and how, like, the idea of oh, if you go in this section, it's one thing and if you go in this section it's another don't wear a British flag shirt or something like that. I was you know kind of half joking with my parents packing like oh I can't bring that green shirt but I've actually I've, I've been with friends of mine who are from the Republic and I, I'm living in a generally Protestant neighborhood I've lived you know like a five-minute walk from an orange hall and an Irish friend of mine you know from Ireland was oh I don't want to talk out loud here because they'll hear my accent. Like, so there is definitely that sense of there are certain spaces where some people aren't allowed to be in. And then there's others where it's completely open. Like, I'm in city center, and I honestly haven't noticed within city center a lot of things. And I think it's because you don't necessarily talk about the conflict in those places. Mm -hmm. It's just ta a taboo topic. Mm. Yeah. I but think, yeah, but also the fact that it's in the city center, and Jan says this as well in her in her research. She came across this. Whereas if it's in the city center, it's not a divided space because everybody goes into the city center. They've mm -hmm. left their space and they've come into the city center. Everybody does that. Everyone comes in, and they can go in and out of shops and cafes mm -hmm. and different places. And it's 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 a completely different experience. So. The root of fixing things is capitalism. <laughs> so, <laughs> Joking. <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, so it, it sounds like like what we said. I mean, how how did the organizations? Did she talk about how her organization sort of played with these mixed spaces that already exist? I mean, like Girdwood, because she talked about Girdwood in Belfast. Uh, what sort of spaces would they or shared spaces would they make that aren't moderated by the shopping mall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So in Girdwood, they have a dry leisure center, and that's where they can come together. I think that just means it doesn't have a swimming pool. <laughs> um, this is the shared space. It's called a community hub, and that's where people from both sides can come and meet. Hmm. But it's not as far on as the home for cooperation in Cyprus. They're much further down the road with that. Yeah, let's hear a little bit more about that from Jan. I was interested in the two organizations that had placed themselves at the interface of um, the divided communities. So one here in Belfast, the Girdwood Hub, which was actually set up by a number of organisations from both communities. So it was, it was like a coalition or a collaboration between different organisations. And then in Cyprus, in Nicosia, an organisation called the Home for Cooperation, which was a grouping together, came out of another organisation, which was looking at the historical research into Cyprus, 
and they then came together and set something up which was actually on the boundary between the two societies. So it was actually in no man's land between the two, a building that had been sort of shelled and, you know, bulleted and things like that. Okay, so very dramatic setting. Mm. And how did that work? How did it, how did they get on? I think, well, both of them are at different stages. And I think what if a part of the research that I found was that it takes a lot of groundwork to be able to actually change how people relate to the land, to the ground. And timing is really important to it as well. So, for instance, in Girdwood in, um, in Belfast, uh, there's been some criticism that they've moved too quickly into creating a space, a building. It's actually a, it's a dry leisure centre with other facilities. Uh, they had an aspiration that be a peace and reconciliation centre. But they've got a youth centre there and they've got this dry leisure centre. But the hope was that they would be able to use this space and create it as a shared space, which they're still trying to do. But I think the concern is that there needed to be more work across community before the space was put there. Because there's always, I think, in a divided society, because ground is, and ter- is seen as territory, that if it feels like it belongs to one or another, then actually that sort of space is lost to the sort of common cause. Whereas I think in Cyprus, example, because they'd spent... I mean, it's not, with that, it's not that they haven't made mistakes, because, you know, they say they have, but they've perhaps been doing it for a little bit longer. And so they've been able to, you know, work quite uh, quietly, but, again, persistently, I think is a sort of key word, just bringing together people in the space that is between the two communities. It's not without its difficulty, because they, to get to the space, you have to go through a checkpoint from either community. So it's not straightforward by any means, but it's, they've then been able to create this particular space that feels very welcoming, and they have activities that are meaningful to people. And do you see a time when there will be a space in Belfast, which will be similar, where I know they've started, but do you see a time when people will come from both sides and share a space? Mm. I mean, there are other examples in Northern Ireland, I think, of where of where that's happened and some other projects that have been cross-community. I think what's interesting, is interesting rather in Girdwood, it's an area where, you know, there's been quite a lot of strong conflict and difficulty over, ma- you know, many years and some of that continues mm. and a lot of it has continued at the interface in you know, lots of instances for instance of antisocial behaviour happen to be at those interfaces and so it depends I think what happens now I think one of the key bits of learning for me from from the research is the community sector organisations can do a lot and they can make deep roots but there's so many other factors around them that they have no little influence over it would be hard to say at this stage how successful they will be. There are things that um, we'd want, you know, I'd like to recommend that they do and that there's resourcing for it. For instance, at the Home Food Corporation in Nicosia, they set up a cafe and it might seem like a very simple thing and it's not economically viable, you know, but they decided, they used the term, it was socially viable, but it wasn't financially viable. But they thought it was really important that people could come there and just sit and relax get to see other people from the other community. Whereas at at Girdwood, they've not been able to invest in anything like that. So people don't routinely use the space. So it's still seen as a sort of space that doesn't belong to them. 
it belongs to other people that are just trying it out for the sports centre. So it's not yet in that, it's still in this very mercurial state, still a forming state, really. And even, you know, the Home for Cooperation could likewise, you know, that could change again because the politics around it change and have changed quite recently in terms of cooperation at a sort of level one peace building level. I've found this fascinating. So if it's a leisure centre, are they centering their ideas and concepts of uniting people around sports? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's just the space. They're just using the space. Yeah. Mm. I don't think it's just for people from both sides who are interested in sport. It's getting a bit niche then, isn't it? And they have this fantastic project in Cyprus. They have a building that they that Home for Cooperation use and they've opened a cafe. They opened a cafe a while ago. It's not hmm. a fancy cafe, it's quite basic, but mm-hmm. it's people from both sides can come to this cafe and something as simple as share a cup of coffee in this, like have a cup of coffee in a shared space with people from the other side. I love the idea of that. Having lived in Greece with Turkish people, the concept of coffee itself is almost a mini conflict. So I love the (laughs) idea that they've actually joined people over this very contested idea of what coffee is and which one's better, Greek or Turkish coffee. Ah, Um, this, yes. Okay, so this is like the French and Italian fight about coffee. Yes. They have the best coffee. My dad asked for a Turkish coffee at a Greek uh, cafe one time and mm-hmm. the guy was was not pleased but our server was Swedish so it didn't I don't think it really mattered it was just like don't let my boss hear <laughs> it's interesting to think about why they've chosen to do this too what they want is from people for people from both sides to come in I mean that that is their goal I think that coming in is is something that I when I was listening to Jan talking Imagining how that looked was because they have to cross checkpoints to come into this space. Is that correct? They have to cross the walls, which are obviously very physical symbols of this negative piece that we spoke about, this wall that exists that they have to cross. Absolutely. It's not like just not like you or I going for a cup of coffee. It's not like that at all. This is very organized. You're you're not going to just sort of nip out and go for a coffee. If you're going to do it, it's a big thing. It's yeah. not just a daily thing that you do. This is a big thing that you've got to plan for. I can imagine that that moment, the first moment walking in, must be difficult. Yeah, sc- scary. Even. Yeah. If it is such a big operation to have people come out and, and go to this coffee shop, I, I, I can't imagine that that helps with drawing as many different people from across community lines as possible. I would think in terms of outreach, that would present a barrier. Did Janet all talk in her research about outreach programs, some you know ways that could make it easier for people to get into these shared spaces? Yes, because Jan was saying, you know, very often within these uh, community sector organizations or civil society organizations, the people who are in the organizations are kind of preaching to the choir. Mm. You know, that was the phrase that she used. And because the people that they're talking to are they're the people who have the same goals that they have. So what they really want to do is reach the typical person. On the subject of outreach, Jan said... There have been a number, I think particularly young people, there are opportunities that both organisations have set up for them that are life-changing and they're creating sort of leaders of, you know, today and tomorrow. It's interesting as well that particularly in Belfast, a number of women have got involved in doing cross-community work, coming together, working on issues together, coming up with ideas for new projects, looking at ways of getting rid of the the peace lines. So for them, I think it's been life-changing. They've created 
you know, new friendships across the community. And they've really sort of led the way. I think the criticism of, you know, these organisations is that they often don't reach what's seen as the typical community member. It's the untypical people, they're sort of preaching to the choir rather than to the congregation, if you like, who would be there as part of it rather than people who actually need to be convinced. You know, it needs to be across the whole of society. And in your research, did you come across anything, that any steps that were being taken to reach those, those people? I noticed in Nicosia, I mean, what was quite a good thing, I think, was because they'd managed to get a lot of credibility for the Home for Cooperation, it enabled other organisations to come in and sort of piggyback onto some of what they were doing. And there was a great organisation who I'd met called Colive. They were in Olive, they looked at olive production across the island. And uh, they were working with olive farmers. And farmers are traditionally seen as more typical in a sense and less likely to want to be involved in peace building activities. And so they were working with they were working with olive producers on either side of the island to come together and create olive oil which they could sell internationally and they were then working with them bringing them together so they went out to there and worked with them then brought them back to the center so it's a bit like a hub and a spoke and they brought them back to the center in fact they're planning to bring them back about around now to do some work around water conservation which is a big issue for the for the island so yes so there's things like that there was also this you know this hub idea of some people work, doing work, going out to schools to do work on things like dealing with racism and bigotry, which they would do in a school, and then they would bring people back together where they would meet, the two communities would meet. So there's, you know, these sorts of activities taking place. So some of it takes place in this sort of safe space of the centre, and then some of it takes place in, the, in each community. And then, where, you know, for some, they then, there was a chance to cross over as well. You know, they might have a camp in one side or the other, for instance. And are there activities like that going on in Northern Ireland as well? There are some activities, less so. I mean, in Girdwood, for instance, they had a summer scheme for kids where they you know, had a lot of activities and brought them together. And, the, you know, the women's group who get together as well. But in terms of reaching the typical group, I think it's at too, you know, it's too early a stage where they're dealing with uh, colonising the space, as it were, making the safe space safe, rather, so that they can do more. I love the idea of olive farmers all joining together. And I think that's where, I mean, I asked Jan that question in the fireside chat of how do you actually get people involved in this? Because having done youth work myself, it's hard to encourage people to come back every week. And like you were saying, crossing the line, it's a big thing for these people to do this. I mean, I think it's just a testament to these shared spaces that there is hope for the future in moving forward and getting people on the same page. And, you know, in 100 or 150 years time, they'll look back and see that as olive farmers that move together in, into the future. I love the idea. I also love the idea of the olive farmers. Farmers from both sides grow the olives and then they process the olives and they make olive oil and it is sold internationally. And at the end of their working day, they gather in the cafe, in the home for cooperation. Hmm. So they gather together and they, they drink coffee together. I mean, it's not a small thing. This is a really big thing, you know, that they've taken this leap and they've done this. Jan didn't know of anything like that going on in Northern Ireland, certainly not yet. Um, but there are, of course, farmers right across Northern Ireland on both sides of the divide. I think perhaps that's where what really stood out for me in the two organisations that Jan's 
kind of focused on and also the length that they'd been in existence. And the, the focus on the work aspect that the Cyprus organisation had was incredible. And I think that shared work is something that perhaps is the real joining notion between those people. There's something else that they do in Cyprus. They go from, from home for cooperation. They go out into schools. So oh, they go great. to schools on both sides yeah. and they talk to children about racism and about hatred and each side learns about the other side so that obviously the goal is that this will help in the future. Yeah, as a former teacher, it's amazing that they're going into the schools because really that's where the future is. That's where you can make an impact, such an impression on people about what they can do and what, they, what opportunities are possible for them in the future too. That's also, I mean, that's something that you hear or that I've heard a lot as an outsider coming into Northern Ireland that is such a hot button issue and and what a lot of people consider a problem to maintaining that peace. If you want to build peace, if you want a positive peace, then you struggle by having segregated schools based on the different sections. And I think that's what's great about Goodwood is the focus on youth youth and the leisure centre and what that provides for the young people, because even if... Unfortunately, they may not be reaching, you know, the sort of everyday typical person at the moment. The people that they are reaching may be able to go out into those communities. Those young people that they're reaching now may be able to go out and move those conversations forward and get people in. And I mean, I always wanted to do things when I was younger based on what my friends were doing. So hopefully that has a ripple effect that will mean that we'll be growing olives in Northern Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it will move forward the, the peace work and the peace movement itself. So did Jen talk about who was involved in these community organisations? She did. And actually, she spoke very highly of them. She was I think she when she started out, she knew she was going to be impressed by these people. But I didn't I don't think she realised how impressed she was going to be. They were just so incredibly committed to what they were doing. But I asked her as well, was it life changing for them? I mean, we think in terms of what they're achieving for other people, but I was wondering if it was life changing for them. And she said, absolutely, it was. It was was huge in their lives. And the thing is that they did it for years and years and they're still doing it. And they're doing it for years and years and years. Just an incredible level of commitment. And I also asked her because she was talking about some of the women who were involved in the peace building. And I was asking her, um, you know, I said, was it mostly women that you that you met when you were doing your research? And she said, no, which Mm. I thought was Mm. interesting and also really good to hear that there are men involved in the peace building also. Sure. Yeah. Even looking at our program, how many more women are there (laughs) studying this than there are men? I'm one of maybe five men yeah. in the program they're not they're not many <laughs> oh you mean on the master's program yeah. yeah 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 it's a lot of women on the master's program because i haven't counted how many men there are but there aren't that many i think the men? impact of that can sometimes be is that or the implied impact is that if you can't get men involved in the peace building then how do you do you reach that typical person on the street which we were sort of discussing before yeah let's hear a little bit more about that from jan There were a number of women, for sure, but it wasn't only women, both men and women, who had been involved for a number of years. And so they brought different things to it. You know, there were a range of different backgrounds as well to the people that were involved. But I think what I was struck by with the people that I met was, yeah, their dedication to what they were doing, you know, their quietness in how they just got on with it. 
and their willingness really to put aside you know, their own ego in this and be and adapt to circumstances. I mean, I was in awe of the people I met, actually. They were sort of really, you know, very talented and very visionary without expecting any personal reward. It's kind of refreshing, isn't it, to mm. hear that? Mm, definitely. <laughs> the people that I interviewed and researched were, had spent a lot of time building up those relationships and undertaking activities that enabled them to create a trust and a bond. And they stuck around for a long time. They were remarkably persistent in what they did. They were you know, part of that community. And they were also very good, I think, at tuning in to what was going on both in their community, but also in the other community, and just adjusting messaging or levels of activities and what was appropriate when. So, so they actually built up quite a, you know, what I found to be called uh, a thick trust with other people from other people in other organisations in the other communities, which really enabled them to you know, work together and, and create something much more concrete. That was just honestly great. These would be people from the community who were interested in promoting peace, interested in not returning to conflict. That's, the, that's what they're all about. It was very interesting talking to her because we talked about them, these people who are involved in these their community, society, organisations, being able to take risks that perhaps other people would not be able to take, you know, people from the state or people, maybe politicians, you know, they, they, they would be nervous. They would have a fear of going into certain places. So Jan was saying, yes, that these people from these community groups they did take risks and they are still taking risks today and they are able to go into places that maybe people from the state or politicians would not be able to go into because they have built up this trust with people over the years and but she was very clear about the risks they were taking that they were educated risks they weren't just being yeah. you know irresponsible they were they knew what they were doing. They were reacting to built-up relationships. So, you know, they were able to go into, into places that other people wouldn't have been able to go into and therefore talk to other people. So it sounds like trust is really a central issue here. And from what I could imagine, it, it, it's a necessary component of getting two conflicting sides to talk together. This episode is a fantastic testament to the Master's Programme. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and it was an absolute pleasure to, to interview Jan. This has been uh, very interesting. Thank you for coming in and talking with us, Catherine. Yes, thank you so, so much. I've found this fascinating. Thank yeah. you so much, Catherine. Um, it was great to hear your interview, to, for you to share some of your journalistic experience with us as well. Um, I think we've all benefited from your knowledge and expertise. Thank you so much. Today, we're bringing in a new segment to the podcast. New recurring segment. Yes. So, Liam, thank you so much for coming today. No, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to have you, Liam. Now, I think you and myself in discussions about this were really interested in bringing something to the podcast where people that are listening can go out and kind of learn where to find resources or search for things themselves. So, I mean, that's what we've, we've sort of got you here doing today. And I was really desperate that we went with your original name for the segment which was 
It was related to the Belfast phrase about coming down the lag and in a bubble, which is, for people who aren't familiar with that concept, is to be totally isolated from the world and the news around you. Mm. So we were trying to think of a name, trying to tie it into the work that's going on in Northern Ireland, and that was generally the only thing I could think of, but I'm still not too sure if it's too cliché. So we've still not gone for it, so if anybody does have any suggestions about better names for this section, then I'd be more than delighted to hear them. Yes, also Morgan struggled to pronounce lagging. Lagan. Well, you were close, Lagan. yeah. Yes. Oh, I did it correctly. No, you did it you less, did it less, less bad. Yes. Great. So thank you so much, Liam. And we're very excited to hear what you have in yeah. store for us. Thank you very much. Coming down the lagon in a bubble. Hi there, my name is Liam, and in this section we're seeking to highlight some of the key issues raised over the past month in the area of conflict transformation and social justice. This section is set as a resource recap in a new style, and going forward we will particularly welcome contributions from our listeners via our email address, which is mpodmitchell at gmail.com, but don't worry, we'll circulate that at the end. First, a little bit about myself. I'm currently an MA student originally from the northeast of England and have a background in the co-op and trade union movement and my interests are in working class communities and post-conflict societies. Over the past month we pulled some useful resources and here are some of the highlights. The ongoing conflict in northern Syria was an area featured by the BBC's Briefing Room podcast. This podcast provides different perspectives and we hear from Eric Schmidt who's a senior writer with the New York Times and Lena Khatib who is head of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. This podcast is available via the BBC Sounds app and we'll share the resources at the end. Another area making the news has been Spain and Catalonia. We have two resources to highlight and share. One from Al Jazeera's Inside Story podcast where we hear from Elena Jimenez who is a board member of Aminium Cultural which is a Catalonian cultural NGO whose president has recently been sentenced to eight years in jail. We also have a resource from Refinery29, highlighting the role of women activists in the independence campaign and also providing a perspective on the recent demonstrations filling the Catalan capital. One key resource that I'm really keen to highlight is the Forward Together podcast, which is a joint project between the Community Relations Project and the Hollywell Trust up in Derry. This podcast looks at four key areas. These are how we can strengthen civic society in Northern Ireland and how we can create a more shared and integrated society, how we look to deal with the past and promote reconciliation, and finally, how we'll go about addressing the constitutional question of Northern Ireland going forward. My two favourite episodes in this season highlight the work of Linda Irvine in East Belfast, and her work in particular in promoting an understanding and the learning of the Irish language in a unionist area of East Belfast. Another excellent podcast is highlighting the work of Avila Kilmurray, in particular her work in North and West Belfast, seeking to strengthen civic society, highlighting her role in bringing together communities during the conflict. This podcast also has a really useful review and panel discussion section addressing the four questions discussed. As noted, we'll be circulating these resources via our social media channels, and we would particularly welcome any resources which you think may be of interest to other listeners to this podcast. So please feel free to send them in via our email addresses and in reply to our social media platforms. Thank you. Thank you to Jan King for her interview and Stephen Mullen for his endless help. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this first episode of the new season of MPOD. 
If you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at QUBMPod and Instagram at QUBMPod. Do you have something to add or any questions to ask? Please feel free to share your feedback and comments with us at mpodmitchell at gmail.com. Here at MPod, we discuss important issues, but they're not always easy to talk about, and we recognize that they might be sensitive for some listeners. We'd like to remind all listeners that Queen's Wellbeing Service offers a drop-in service every weekday during term time between 12.30 and 1.30 p.m. You can also contact the Wellbeing Service at 02890-972-893 or by email at studentwellbeing at qub.ac.uk. This podcast represents the perspective of the students involved in the program and the people interviewed in the podcast. We understand that this is not representative of all the students at Queen's or at the Mitchell Institute. MPOD is a production of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security, and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. Once again, thank you for listening.